HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's show was sponsored by Bob's Red Mill, employee-owned and operated, and founded on the principle of good food for all. Learn more at bobsredmill.com slash podcast. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Good afternoon, and welcome to Eating Matters, where we talk about food policy and how it impacts all of us. I'm your host, Jenna Liute, and we're broadcasting live from Roberta's on Heritage Radio Network. Today, we're going to be revisiting a panel discussion I recently moderated for the Department of Ag and Markets uh, within New York State, and it's their annual Farm to City Expo. This took place um, during the 2017 International Restaurant Show, and the focus of the panel was on the power of local branding for food businesses. I was thrilled to participate in the programming and really wanted to be able to share this conversation more broadly with all of our listeners. As I know a lot of you probably have experienced, there's been a rise in popularity for locally sourced foods, which is happening across various of segments in the food industry. And just to kind of give you guys some context on how much this demand has affected the market within the restaurant industry alone, a 2016 survey by the National Restaurant Association found that 68% of consumers are more likely to visit a restaurant service serving locally sourced items. And um, 92% of restaurants, uh, restaurant tours rather, said that they plan to add local locally sourced items to their menus within the the next year, um, kind of in response to this demand. So today, we're going to learn more about the degree to which demand has risen, uh, why the market continues to shift in this direction, and how major food retailers in particular are responding to this demand. Joining me from the Food Marketing Institute to get into this discussion is Rick Stein, the VP of Fresh Foods. Um, The Food Marketing Institute is Trade Association for Free Food Retail, and they provide programs, resources, and advocacy for the food, pharmacy, and grocery retail industry. In his role, Rick is responsible for developing a portfolio of services and activities to assist members in formulating and executing their fresh food strategies. Rick, welcome to the show. 
It's a pleasure to be with you today, Jenna. Just one quick question before we get started. With regard to your title and your work, what does fresh food entail? Is this just produce? No, this is really what most people refer to as the perimeter um, of the store. So we're looking at produce, seafood, fresh meat, and frozen meat. Uh, we're looking at the bakery, uh, fresh bakery and commercial bread, and then the deli and everything that it entails in the deli, including the food service programs and floral. Um, what about prepackaged food? Does this include that? By prepackaged, only those that are in those departments. So it mm-hmm. would not include those that are in frozen or dairy or in the center of the store up and down the aisles, but prepackaged as in ready pack salad um, or some of the meats come prepackaged, um, it would include those. And then for the rest of our discussion, when we talk about when we get into the conversation on local, we will be talking about local across all of those categories, not just produce, right? That is correct. So we kind of, when we start studying local and getting uh, consumer response, we're really asking around the whole perimeter. Perfect. Um, Okay, so I teed it up a little bit in the intro, but can you uh, give us some more details on the work that uh, FMI does? What is the mission and the scope um, of your organization? Sure. FMI is the trade association that serves as the voice of food retail. We're based out of Arlington, Virginia, and we assist our food retailers in the role of feeding families and enriching lives. Since our membership is comprised of food retailers, wholesalers, suppliers, service providers of all types and sizes, FMI provides a comprehensive portfolio of programs, resources, and advocacy for the grocery retail industry. And we pride ourselves on covering a wide range of topics that are important to the industry to include food safety and defense, government relations, private brands, supply chain, and my area of fresh foods. Um, We also at FMI, we provide research and education on the latest trends and growth strategies, Mm -hmm. and we encourage networking and sharing of ideas through participation and committee work and attendance at our conferences, and we engage in advocacy efforts in Washington to make sure our members' voices are heard and the voice of food retailing is heard. How uh, big is the association? You know, how many people are, how many organizations are members and kind of what is the breadth of the members reach? So so we have probably over 2,000 members representing uh, in excess of 85% of the all commodity volume of food retailing. So not every food retailer is a member, but also some non-traditional uh, food retailers. So uh, in addition to supermarkets, we have uh, drug chains like Walgreens. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have super centers like Walmart and Target. So um, we like to say that we're the voice of food retail. And therefore, anyone who's selling food, we'd like to be uh, able to represent them. Okay, great. Um, so that gives that gives a lot of um, kind of context and background into, into who you are working on behalf of. Um, okay, and so today, you know, we're going to, like I said, we're going to focus mostly on the rise in demand for local products. But before we get into that, I know that um, FMI has just conducted um, a really interesting study on some of the top trends within your category, um, your expertise, which is fresh foods. I'm wondering if you can kind of give us a little insight into what some of those trends are um, and maybe some of the broad stroke implications that they have for the retail industry. Okay, Jen, and I'll try and be brief because I could do this for 40 yes, minutes, yeah. so I don't want to do that. <laughs> yeah. But um, 
in January of 2016, we released Top Trends and Fresh, and then this year we're just releasing it again, uh, another Top uh, Trends and Fresh. But last year we talked about food transparency, and that's that ever-growing uh, desire of consumers to know where and how food is grown or made. Mm-hmm. So uh, transparency has become very big in the industry. And when we talk about these trends, they're not really flash in the pan. These are trends that are going to be around for three to five years and will impact the way consumers behave and the way retailers respond to their behavior. Another area that we talked about was new supply chains. And so how are people getting food? So we talked about, you know, you have vertical farming that's going on. You have, um, you have delivery methods that are new. Think of Blue Apron that delivers meals to the home. Mm-hmm. Um, farmers markets. Uh, we saw growth in farmers markets go. I think we had over 8,400 farmers markets by the end of 2015. And I think the data I saw for 2016 is it now exceeds 10,000 farmers markets. So there's all these new ways, what we call supply chains, in which uh, consumers can uh, get their product. The third area that we talked about was convenience, and this is an overriding. It'll be interesting as your listeners really start to think about convenience and how it impacts what they're doing. Mm-hmm. I think uh, I mentioned that the uh, program where I met you, for the first time last year, food prepared away from home exceeded food prepared at home. So for the first time, and this is all due to convenience, this is that idea of uh, it's more convenient to go to a restaurant or to get a carryout than it is to go ahead and cook something from scratch. And then we see convenience as we go up and down the aisle. Think about all the cut fruit and cut veg that you're seeing in stores that's already prepared for you. So we see convenience as an overriding theme that's impacting how how folks are uh, um, purchasing. And and that might, I mean, you know, at first blush, that to me seems like maybe not a great thing for the for food retailers if more people are eating out than cooking at home. Is it something that's of concern? Um, I think, you know, um, it's a concern, but I think retailers are always nimble and respond. So they always try to find ways to meet their consumers' demand. So you'll see, and we can talk about it as we go through with local as mm-hmm. well, all the areas of the store that are starting to become more convenient. For instance, the fourth trend we talk about is fresh prepared. So think about some of the supermarkets now. They're beginning to look like a restaurant. Some of them actually are restaurants. Right. They have a sit-down area with waiters where you can order, um, and, and their food service program has really expanded in some of the uh, uh, supermarkets. So that that's kind of a byproduct, but it's gotten so big, we actually named that one of the uh, uh, top five trends. And then the last trend we talked about is this idea of the connected consumer. So you think of everyone that has a cell phone, that has you know data transmission on it. They can Google something. They get information very quickly. Matter of fact, I think that's where the roots of local began was on this, you know, in social media and all this, uh, the way consumers are connected and all the information that's flowing to them. Um, yeah, and I and it seems like that is, um, you know, kind of maybe also born out of this idea of, you know, food transparency, wanting to know where your your food came from, who produced it, um, and then it also kind of speaks to maybe your the the new supply chains um, being that that the connection with your farmer going direct kind of to the farmer farmer in some cases. Um, yeah. So thank you for that segue, because <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, let's let's talk a little bit more about 
um, about the rise in, in local demand. And again, you know, I'm kind of a stickler for uh, defining our terms. Uh, how do you let, let I want to get some clarity on how you define local in your work, because, you know, as we know, like a, a million different people can can define this a million different ways. Well, we've done some research, and we actually went out and asked consumers how they define local. And we now have a couple years of that, Jenna, and it's funny how it's changing. So if you went back to, um, you know, 2015, 2016, what basically we learned from the consumers is that you as a retailer could define local. As long as you had the information out, if you said local is from these four states, um, the consumer would buy into that. They'd say, okay, they've defined it. It's from these four states, so I now know what they call local. And they could go into another supermarket, and they may define local as a 100-mile radius. Right. But what we've seen in the research as we've gone forward is that circumference is tightening. So consumers are now starting to have more information about local, and we're seeing that circumference get a little bit smaller. It also depends on what area of the country you're in. So imagine you're in Southern California. It'd be very difficult any time of the year to describe something as outside of Southern California as being local, because that's a great growing region year-round. Same thing with uh, Florida. It's a growing region, you know, 12 months out of the year. But if you're in North Dakota and it's in January, <laughs> and you got and you got fruits tomatoes and, veg, yeah. <laughs> and you got fruits and veg that came from the United States yeah they may uh, say okay that's local it right. wasn't imported it was grown here in our USA right so so it changes you know geographically and also changes by the time of year huh. but we definitely saw this tightening Jenna at the end of 2016 and how consumers were defining local um what was there any like average that you could kind of ascertain from that like 250 miles I think is what standard I hear a lot. I wish I could. I wish I could define it, but it changes. And as I said, that that circumference is probably much tighter when you get into Florida. Mm-hmm. It's much wider when you get into Minnesota, North Dakota. Yeah. It gets a little bit tighter when you're in New York. Uh, folks in New York like to think of anything that's grown in New York as being local. And in some cases, they even take it smaller, where they say it's 150 to 200 miles. Yeah. Um, and it's you know it's just interesting how I, I go back to. You need to tell the consumer how you're defining it. Yes. And they'll push back if they don't buy into it. So if you're in New York and you're selling, you know, um, apples from, say, Virginia, I don't know that they're going to buy into that because, you know, New York grows many of their own apples. So I think you'd have a hard time trying to convince that consumer that it's local just because you said it was. So I think it has to have that litmus test of does it make sense to the consumer. And it's by different products, too. Yeah. Um, okay, so when did when did retailers start to see an uptick in demand for these products, and what has the effect been um, that you witnessed? So, so I think local's been around definitely for more than you know more than fifteen years. But the uptick, I believe, started as we came out of that recession of two thousand nine to two thousand you know two thousand seven to two thousand ten. What we started seeing at that point was a lot of bifurcation of income as people started to lose jobs, and then as they found jobs, it was usually, you know, sometimes not at the same pay scale. We started to see this this interest in how they could get food, and what they began to realize is that they wanted to support uh, their local growers. The other thing Halo effect it had at first mm-hmm. was consumers thought local meant organic. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> they yeah. thought that it was sustainably grown. <laughs> they had all these attributes, even though it may not have been. It may not have been organic. It may not have been sustainably grown. But that was the attribute that they thought of local. And what we saw over the last year, based on the consumer research we did, is it went uh, – oh, I'm sorry. One other thing is they, they also told us that they thought it was fresher. This yeah. idea that the product didn't have to travel that far to get to your store, mm-hmm. they kind of just thought, okay, that product has to be fresher. It has to be better for me because it didn't take that long to get there. Right. And, and, and then what we saw in 2016 when we asked, that, you know, asked the consumers, what really started to rise to the top, and, and maybe it's because it was an election year, but this whole idea of supporting your local economy, that became the predominant reason consumers wanted to support local. Hmm. And that began to change. Now that you know, retailers understood that, that's why you had this narrowing of the circumference of local. You, you, if that's what they were interested in, you couldn't say, hey, four states away is local, because they may not have been concerned about the economy four states away. Right. They were concerned about their communities and, and, and their state. Yeah. Um, and so that's re- that's really interesting to me. I mean, you know, on the fresh aspect, I think that's pretty that's pretty standard. Right. I mean, you can assume that if it doesn't have to travel as far. Yes. You know, you will be getting fresh produce, fresh herb produce. But um, certainly with the supporting your local and regional economies, that that seems to be um, such a strong message that I it seems like we'll kind of continue to carry through. And we consider it statistically significant because quite often when you're doing studies from year to year, things change just a little bit. Mm -hmm. But we saw in one year that freshness was overtaken by local economy. And to see it flip that much in one year, and I go back to I think this had something to do with the fact that we were in an election year. Mm -hmm. And so economy was at the conversation in all the media. And that's what started to get them zeroed in as that's my main reason for wanting to buy local. And actually, speaking of kind of data collection, um, how do your members monitor consumer preferences? Like, is, is this just sales data? Or are there other metrics that can help um, a retailer help inform like a retailer's procurement uh, strategy? Well, the great thing about retailers is they're right there where the activity happens. So they just, they can look at their internal supply and demand, and when they begin to see demand uh, ticking up, they often can see it very quickly. Um, they also use data warehouses like IRI and Nielsen, and those folks can report. But quite often, Nielsen and IRI, they could be three, four months behind seeing a trend start to evolve, where people at the store level see it right there. All of a sudden, they see, hey, every day I'm out of stock on this. I'm ordering more. i got to stock more. And so they can see the demand picking up on a daily basis where the data kind of lags behind. And then the advantage that some retailers have is they have loyalty programs. Mm-hmm. And when you have a loyalty program, you can really look at your internal data and you begin to see the segments of your consumers. So they don't know it's you, Jenna. They right. just know that your number is one, two, three, four. And number one, yeah. two, three, four was buying X products last year and now they're buying Y products this year and they're buying more of it. So they begin to see their own internal data, yeah. be able to give them some information on how things are evolving very quickly. I mean, I use Google and Facebook, so I pretty much just understand that every company needs knows everything it needs to know. 
<laughs> yeah, I always, I always had, you know, I worked My information's out there. for many years. We had a loyalty <laughs> program. And you always got into the privacy issue. Yeah. And I always had to explain to my relatives, we don't know it's you. Yeah. We don't know that it's you. We just know that there's a number and a consumer, and you represent information. And at the end of the day, retailers want to help their consumers. Yeah. So when they can actually, you know, discern from that data and be able to provide them what they want, I think that's a good thing. Yeah. I mean, I, it's, it's also just so interesting to me kind of how, you know, say if you didn't have uh, something that was branded local before, like, you know, locally sourced apples, how does that trend sort of pick up steam or just originate and then pick up steam, right? Like how do retailers know how to respond to that even before they have the item, um, for instance, that they can start tracking the volume of sales on? Well, you know, I go back to, and I said at the end of the five trends, I talked about this connected consumer. And we often talk in our industry right now about, you know, we use the term the speed of information. And information is flowing so quickly now in so many patterns. So you begin to pick up local, and consumers are picking this up. The millennials are picking it up on social media. They're being told that local's better for you. They're being told that local, like, like I mentioned earlier, they may think it's organic or it has less pesticides, insecticides on it. Um, so that, that information is flowing very quickly, and it doesn't take long for a store manager to have a customer, you know, knocking on the door and saying, you know, where are your local apples? Or I'm looking for local beef. You know, where is it? Well, you know, can you tell me? And so that demand goes back to the headquarters, and they say, hey, we got consumers asking us for this product. And it, it built up very quickly from that 2007 to nine, which I think is kind of the inflection point of where it really started to take root. Mm -hmm. And all the way up to now, we're, you know, we're talking in 2017, one of our new trends is what we're calling hyper-localization. Uh, this idea that local has gone well beyond what we imagine. It, it doesn't just come down to the product. It comes down to um, the local store. they employing local employees, and are they using local energy sources? And are they, you know, it's, local has gone to a far extreme now. Um, what, uh, so what are some examples of impactful brand messaging that you have seen retailers do, um, for consumers to kind of drive sales in that direction? You know, it, it doesn't take long if you go out and you tour the country and you just start walking through some retail stores, you begin to see how they're really trying to, to get this messaging across. I've gone from retailers that have actually redesigned their produce departments to mimic a farmer's market, where they're using crates and wheelbarrows and, and signage that definitely you know begins to... Uh, give that message of where the local is. They actually have local farmers sometimes come to make store appearances and talk mm -hmm. to the consumers about their farm. Um, I see that retailers are, are trying to get that message across in many ways across the perimeter and even in the store in total where they begin to talk about on their websites that we like to source locally and they continue to give that messaging. And I think you've heard a lot of this lately too, Jenna, especially amongst the millennials. Everyone's looking for food with a story. Mm -hmm. so, so you see that at the restaurants all the time. It's not unusual to walk into a restaurant and the menu on one side or the other has a, a couple pairs paragraphs that kind of talks about how they source their food, how they prepare their food, because people want the story. Yeah. And so what retailers are doing now is they're beginning to get POS at, inside the store that begins to tell the story. It's not just it was from Jenna's local farm. 
Then there's a little bit of POS that talks about Jenna, and Jenna is the fourth generation farmer, and her ancestors came over from so-and-so, and they started this farm. They're on the same plot of land. They just begin to give this story to the consumers, which we also interpret that as, in, as transparency. Mm-hmm. So we begin to say, okay, the more you can be transparent about where that food was grown or raised and be able to almost, I, I almost use the analogy of like wine, where people want to be romanced into wine. They want to hear all the attributes of wine. Yeah. You're romancing them into the story behind food. Right. You know, um, I think I mentioned, I think at the turn of the century in 1900, I think it was, and I, if I'm off by a little bit, I'm sure you'll have somebody come call in and correct <laughs> me, but I think it was like 80% of the population was connected to agriculture. Yeah, I mean, that and more or less And here we are in sense. 2017, 2%. Yeah, are are connected to agriculture. So you have a lot of people that really don't have an understanding of how food is raised or grown, but they they're thirsty for the information. So if you can relay that information to them, I think that really helps uh, create that image and also conveys to them what you're doing. And sorry, I, you know, I should have asked this before, but I I just sort of assume that millennials were the the major demographic driving this push um, towards transparency and and local and new supply chains, all of that. Did I miss anything? <laughs> Is that right? I I think they pushed it, but, you know, I tell folks that it's not unusual now because they pushed it that you're seeing baby boomers and Gen X, they want that information too. So now that transparency has become a demand, it's a demand across all the generations. And so, you know, a lot of people are attributing the millennials as really driving that. But I will tell you, you get as many baby boomers that are asking you for that information now as you do millennials. And there's an expectation that you're going to have it. So I, I do attribute some of that to the millennials, but I will tell you it's cross-generational now. I think that's great. Um, yep. Okay, so we're going to take a, take a quick commercial break uh, to hear a word from our sponsors. But when we get back, I want to talk a little bit more about the demand side of the equation and how small and mid-sized farmers specifically are supporting the rise uh, in demand for local food. Stay tuned. Sounds great. (laughs) I don't think there's anybody worthy to run this company, but the people who built it. I have employees who've been with me for more than 30 years. And plus, each and every one of them deserves to be an owner. That's just the way it ought to be, and that's just the way it is. This is Bob Moore. He and his wife, Charlie, started Bob's Red Mill almost four decades ago. Today, they offer one of the largest lines of organic whole grain foods in the country. And in 2010, on his 81st birthday, Bob gifted ownership of the company to his employees. I'd received plenty of offers to buy my company over the years, but selling out never felt like the right thing to do. When the time comes to let someone else run this show, I can't imagine selling it to a stranger. Giving the company to my hardworking employees just feels right. The company now has an Employee Stock Ownership Plan, or ESOP. Stock is put in a retirement plan for all of its employees. When employees retire, the company buys back their shares. According to the National Center for Employee Ownership, about 11,000 companies in the U.S. currently run as ESOPs. It just shows how much faith and trust Bob has in us. That's Bo Thomas, the company's engineer and maintenance superintendent. He's been with Bob's Red Mill for over 27 years and has put his four children through college in the process. 
for all of us, it's it's more than just a job. And, and obviously, it's the same way for Bob, too. Bob is still very active in the company. He's the president and CEO, and you'll find him working at the mill just about every day. Because when you love something this much, you want to be a part of it. Well, I may have given them the company, but the boss part is still mine. Bob's Red Mill is committed to sharing only the freshest, best-tasting whole grain foods on the planet. Learn more about their mission of good food for all at bobsredmill.com slash podcast. And we're back on Eating Matters, where today we're speaking with Rick Stein from the Food Marketing Institute about the rise in demand for fresh foods and how retailers across the country are adjusting their procurement practices to accommodate um, the rising trend of local uh, foods. Um, Okay, so I want to shift now and talk a little bit about um, supply. Uh, How do your members, the retailers, um, typically find and establish relationships with farmers in general? Um, They usually work with ag centers locally. As the demand is picked up, Jenna, uh, they're definitely reaching out. I think that um, for a long time they had a few local growers, and they were comfortable with that. And those local growers, depending on the season and the weather, could usually produce what they needed. But they didn't really think about uh, you know, making this a much bigger, wider net uh, to throw. But, of course, as I mentioned earlier, retailers are very good at reacting to their consumers' needs and desires. So what they end up doing now is they actually seek out – some of them have an annual program where they'll have growers come in and talk to them and, and, and determine whether they want to do business with them. They are usually very loyal to those growers, so it's not always easy to break in. I I call it like a posse of growers Mm -hmm. that they use, um, and they like to stay loyal to them because they know how important that is to the local grower to be able to you know, forecast what they need to do to supply that retailer. But there's always an opportunity for new growers to come into the fold. Um, So is this is this process, though, the same um, for small and mid-sized farms as it is, which are, by, you know, as I think more typically the farms that we're going to see um, providing local foods um, versus, so is, is the process the same for small and mid-sized farms as it is for larger, more industrial farms? Or is that just kind of handled in two different ways? So, so I think there are some challenges for the small and mid-sized farms, but I think those challenges have gotten a little bit less with this demand on local. I sometimes use the example when I was working for a retailer, we had about 180 stores and we had a um, a local Apple supplier. And when they first came to me, they said, you know, we, we can get you, you know, 200 cases. And I thought to myself, well, 200 cases, you know, that would handle a district. It wouldn't handle my all my stores. And we told them that, you know, we, we'd rather deal with someone larger. Then you fast forward five years later, and I'm calling them, and I'm saying, hey, I'll take, the, I'll take what you can give me. And I may only put them in five stores. Mm-hmm. And then I'll, it'll be hyper-local because it'll be those five stores as close as I can get to that grower. I was willing to change my rules of what I wanted in order to meet this consumer demand. So the idea of even though they were smaller and couldn't support all of my stores, mm-hmm. I was now willing to talk to them because 
trying to get local product out there and trying to get a program behind it was paramount to me. The challenge local growers have to do is so the one thing that's paramount amongst all retailers is food safety. Mm-hmm. Food safety always comes first. And so they're going to make sure, even though they may not be required by FISMA, do on the size of their of their farm. And, and sorry, FISMA for our listeners is the, can you explain what the, that acronym is? Yes, it's safety. the Food Safety Modernization Act, and this all came out of the um, the, the, the last administration, and this was the f- first revolutionary change to our food safety program. But it was the idea of making sure, you know, that we had safe food throughout our supply chain. So mm-hmm. there's lots of rules within the uh, the, the f- federal uh, f- the Food Safety Modernization Act, which is why we call it FSMA, FSMA. Uh, Food Safety Modernization Act. And then um, with the FISMA rules, what they want to do is protect local growers. So when you're below a certain size, Mm -hmm. you do not have to follow the FISMA rules. But retailers have a tendency to have a high litmus test. So the last thing they can afford is for somebody to eat their food and get sick. And when you're talking food safety, you're talking about sometimes life or death. I mean, yeah. that's, there's nothing more paramount to a food retailer. So what they do require is, you, do, you know, if you're a farmer, you're going to be GAP or GIP certified, which is, you know, good agricultural practices, um, which is a certification program where people come out and audit to make sure that your soil uh, passes your water passes, and all the things you're doing in handling your food. And some small farmers don't have all those things in place. Mm-hmm. And so uh, retailers are going to ask them, they're going to have to be some type of food safety certified. Um, small farmers, mid-sized farmers sometimes are afraid of the cost of that. But I think, we, you know, we spend a lot of time, um, we, FMI has even partnered with the Produce Marketing Association to go into communities. We did a little training on Long Island where we brought in all the local growers and showed them how they can become food safety certified, mm-hmm. meet all the requirements, and not really add tremendous cost to their system so that they could do uh, business with the uh, retailers. Okay, so it's it's that kind of making sure that um, your uh, the like certifications are basically up to speed if you are Correct. under and a your certain practices size. that you're practicing things that require that ends up making the food safe that's and the basic the premise. basic one and it but it seems like i mean cuz i would think that maybe guaranteeing a certain amount of supply um, like that would get tricky in terms of you know how much you're going to grow how much does the retailer commit to buying um, it doesn't seem like those are you know barriers are as steep as they maybe once were no I think they have lessened a little bit and I'm not saying that's true for every retailer but I would say that most retailers now are willing to work with local growers to get their programs in because they know how important it is to the consumer. Um, So there seems to still be kind of like this gap, though. I mean, even if it's um, closing a little bit, but this this gap for a farmer whose, like, production is too large for for local farmers' markets but, like, really too small for a one of your big national grocery store chains. Um, what advice do you have for for one of these farm farms like in between? And, and I, where could they kind of go to? 
So I, I would first say start to develop your program of food with a story. Start to think about your farm and how local would resonate. I, even if you have a national chain or whether you have a super regional chain, I would still approach them with the idea that you can bring value to the stores that you're in. And I'd go back and talk about how, you know, whether you've developed a website or whatever you've done to start to get your name out there and how you're promoting your own farm, how that can help that retailer align because the retailer wants to have local programs. So even if you're a small or mid-sized farmer and you can't supply all the stores, like the example I gave, then start to zero on on which stores you could supply and begin to talk to them about that. Um, from a retailer's perspective, so if you're looking to add more locally sourced products, um, have you witnessed, have your members experienced a barrier um, in price? Like, has price impacted a consumer's decision in the research that you've done, uh, whether or not to purchase locally source, sourced uh, foods? So, so one thing I will go back to, our research showed that when they're buying local produce, only about 20% of the consumers expect to get a better price. Mm -hmm. So I think somewhere amongst the consumers, 80% of them don't necessarily think the price of local is going to be favorable. But here's what I will tell you. Retailers are very good negotiators. And so they try to always create the most affordable food that they can create. And I mentioned to you earlier is you have this big bifurcation of income going on in the United States now. And what retailers are trying to do is they want to be there for every consumer. So they get they roll their sleeves up and they negotiate hard to get the costs as low as possible so that they can have the lowest prices out there. And so I think, that, you know, I, my recommendation to farmers is that you need to come prepared to negotiate that, come up with a win-win. No retailer is trying to put a farmer out of business. Right. That's so an not, important point. They're not point. trying to yeah. negotiate a price that is at a loss. But they are going to say, hey, this is what you're going to have to do in order to meet my demand, you know, to be a partner. Mm -hmm. But I also mentioned the backside of that is once you're a partner with a retailer, they're pretty loyal. They're going to come back to you year after year after year. Right. So so there is a happy medium for it to work out for both farmers, consumers, so. and retailers. Um, so, okay. I mean, we, we talked a lot about this, uh, you know, right now we're kind of riding the local wave. Um, what, but what do you think comes next in terms of issues that will resonate or continue to resonate with consumers? So I think consumers, you know, we, we, we see this whole uh, wave of health and wellness and embedded in that health and wellness is this fear of things that are bad for you. So you talk to most consumers about buying organic. They probably could not tell, and I'm saying most, so not all. Mm -hmm. So I know you're going to have some consumers that are very knowledgeable about organic, and they're going to call in and say, no, I know exactly <laughs> what organic is. But if you were to talk to most of your consumers and you were to ask them why they buy organic, they don't know how it's grown, but here's, their, here's what they'll tell you. It doesn't have any of the stuff that's bad for me. Yeah. It doesn't have bad things on it. And I think what we're going to see is this, can, and, that, and that leads to health and wellness. Um, you see that um, new moms are really concerned about the food that they give their babies. They want to make sure that there's nothing wrong with it and there won't be long-term effects. Mm -hmm. And so I think what you're going to continue to see, whether it's local or just in general and fresh, is this idea of being able to communicate that you have food that's healthy, that's good for you, it's free from most of the things that are bad for you. 
Um, you're seeing a lot of stuff when you get into claims in the meat department, no antibiotics, no yeah. antibiotics ever, you know, yeah. uh, no hormones and, you know, all, all these type of things. And, and consumers really don't understand most of the complexities behind that. What they think is ultimately that's, that's not going to harm me. And anything that's not going to harm me is going to be good for me. So I think the trends you're going to see are really going to be around this health and wellness and this idea of bringing food to you that is free from anything bad. Um, yeah, I mean, certainly there is a lot of confusion uh, around organic versus sustainably produced, uh, responsibly grown uh, terms like that. I actually, I'm actually wondering, is there a, b- a big issue um, in terms of kind of consumer education and transparency is the fact that there is no standard labeling for a lot of these different kinds of categories, with the exception, of course, of organic. Uh, have you seen um, an interest in uh, among your members in kind of pushing for more standardized labeling, or is that like from the food manufacturers or, and growers, or is that something that um, hasn't really uh, come up as a priority? there is a big push for for labeling. We're seeing it as starting in the center of the store. There's a program called Smart Label that I think you can uh, scan it um, and when you scan it, it can give you like 96 different attributes of, of you know not only uh, caloric information, it can tell you whether it's GMO or non-GMO. It can kind of give you, you know, sodium content, all, all these different attributes. Mm-hmm. There's definitely a desire to do that. We're also seeing in produce you know, typically um, your consumers bring up a PLU, which is a four-digit code. If it's organic, it's a five-digit code. So 4011 is bananas. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what we're starting to see now is that retailers are asking them to put UPC, which is what you typically see on a, on a can of soup or in the center of the store. That's that 10-digit little barcode. Mm-hmm. They're asking them to put barcodes on it. Once you start putting barcodes on it, you can transmit a lot more information. And then I'll know not only like, where that, you know, oh, that yeah. It's a banana, but I don't know when that who that banana belonged to, which you know who I bought it from, when I bought it from them, when it was picked. Yeah, I, yeah. I have some I have some um, idea of traceability. I can get it back to the farm and information like that. So I think you're going to continue to see some labeling and information uh, transparency. I was at a show one time where somebody had a scanner where they could scan the product. Yeah, actually put the scanner up against the banana. Yeah, and it could give you all the you know they they did it with an apple and it had it could actually measure the apple, tell you how much you know uh, sugar content was in it, tell you where the apple was from, what kind of uh, uh, when when it was picked, that kind of thing. So we're going to continue to see technology improve that ability to give consumers information. Artificial intelligence in the next yeah, the next yeah. wave in, in the food movement. No, it's fair. It's so interesting, and I'm actually really happy to to hear that your members um, are supportive of of increased transparency, transparency through a more kind of clear labeling. <laughs> they, they really are. You know, um, our, our members are, are firm believers that brick and mortar will still play a, a role as people purchase food. You know, we see a lot of digital purchasing going on. You know, everyone uses Amazon as the example and how they're in all different parts of, you know, uh, of people's lifestyle and what they can offer you. But there's something about walking through a produce department or a meat department and touching your food and feeling and being able to talk to somebody 
So I think that experiential piece um, won't go bodes, away. It bodes strong for the retailers. I think yeah. that that's something they can offer. I think they're really good at, at pro- providing safe food. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think those two things will carry them for quite a bit. Yeah, not to mention the fact that um, Amazon just started getting into the whole brick and mortar game. So that's a big, that's a big change. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> An interesting it's decision. Always but developing. It's yeah, always developing, and retailers have to adapt rather quickly to those things. Um, any future initiatives that FMI or your members have, kind of coming down the pike, that you want to share with us before we wrap up? So the only thing I would say is at our website we have several research papers. We do the power of meat. We do the power of produce. We do the power of fresh prepared deli. Um, and then we have top trends and fresh. And all of that can be found on fmi.org. And you can just go to industry topics, uh, click down to the fresh. And all of those, we have webinars. There's all kinds of information for, your, uh, for our listeners out there. Oh, great. All right. Well, Rick, I want to thank you so very much for coming on the show today. Thoroughly enjoyed it, Jenna. Thanks for having me today. Thank you. Are you a Heritage Radio Network member yet? Memberships not only support the production and broadcast of this show, but also comes with some perks. All current members are invited to our new monthly happy hour series, Books and Brews. Join us on April 12th at Three's Brewing at Franklin Kent in Greenpoint with host of Eat Your Words, Kathy Irway, and her new book, The Food of Taiwan. Meet other members, snag a signed copy of The Food of Taiwan, and enjoy some beer from HRN business member Three's. Donate at heritageradionetwork.org backslash donate to get your exclusive invite today. With that, we're going to wrap it up. Um, I also want to give a big thanks to our sponsors for your generous support. Our show is produced with the help from Taylor Lenzette, and show music is by Tim Archer. I want to thank um, my engineer, David Tadashore, who is the best engineer in the entire world. Um, yes, that's for you. That's for you, David. <laughs> Um, all episodes of Eating Matters are available on the Heritage Radio Network website or as a podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe. And hey, if you like what you hear, leave us a comment in the comment section. Only if you like it. <laughs> um, also, like, share, follow, and post to us on Facebook and find us on Twitter at Eat Matters HRN. I'm Jenna Liute, and thank you for listening. for listening to heritage radio network food radio supported by you for our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events subscribe to our newsletter enter your email at the bottom of our website heritageradionetwork.org connect with us on facebook instagram and twitter at heritage underscore radio heritage radio network is a non-profit organization driving conversations to make the world a better fairer more delicious place And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.